When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey there, this is Jeff Tomei. Uh, thanks for the interview. You're listening to uh, Whatever Never Mind. I'm here making records still. to welcome to the program uh producer engineer and uh, a mixer of uh all sorts of uh i mean I, i'll get into your artist here in a little bit but i'm you're here to talk about the jerry Cantrell record of course i'm talking about jeff uh jeff tomei i almost fucked it up there again <laughs> jeff welcome to the program we're, we're off to a rolling start here i can't pronounce your last name but uh i appreciate you coming on well thank you thank you i appreciate the interview um, before we get into the the topic at hand, um, give me a little bit of your background, how you got into basically what you do, which is, is uh, your in-studio work, kind of an all, uh, looking at your, your website and kind of doing some research on you. I mean, you handle everything from engineering to producing to mixing, correct? Right, right. Yeah, just kind of do it all. You started off with, you know, working in a studio doing cassette copies 36 years ago and kind of worked up and, and learned the, the trade. It was pre uh, any kind of trade schools or anything like that so just kind of learned it the old school way being at the studio and figuring it out on your own or having some help with the, the some of the engineers that were there and one of the early projects you worked on was the smashing pumpkin siamese dream record with butch vig is that correct yeah 1992 um so many almost what 30 years ago now yeah <laughs> wow yeah <laughs> Great record, though. Uh, really freshman proud year of in college when that, or second year in college when that came out for me. But yeah, Jesus. Uh, any, we'll share some memories from that. Like, what was it like working with Butch Billy before he was famous? 
Well, Butch is is just Butch is what who Butch is. He's he's not changed a bit. He's just a real chill. Was a was an awesome producer. Just a just a good guy in general. And it was a, you know, it was a, a lot of pressure on the record because there was a lot riding on it. And uh, uh, to the contrast uh, of that, Billy was not so easy to work with. But he's very super. He's super talented. I can't say anything bad about him. He just you know he just was difficult to work with. He kind of had a goal in mind, and he and it had to be that way, and that was it. So. Four months later, we had the record recorded. <laughs> uh, any chance you have a story of being difficult you'd like to share? <laughs> <laughs> Just, you know, it, Billy was really driven, and uh, some of the other bandmates weren't as driven as Billy, and, mm. and it just it turned into a... I mean, it's common knowledge he played almost everything on the record other yeah. than the drums. So, you know, and that was, again, that was due to he had the vision in his head. It, it wasn't necessarily a bully kind of thing. It was just like, well, you can't, you don't have the part down. I'm taking it. Okay. Done. And this was back still in the tape days. This was recorded the two inch tape. So uh, Blade edited everything. It was, uh, you know, a lot of edits, a lot of cuts. Um, but again, just uh, we cut 26 songs during that time frame, and I think 14 are on the record. And then, uh, I don't know, four or five, maybe four made it on the B side record, Pisces Iscariot. So, um, it was uh, again. It was a lot of fun working with Butch, and Butch has obviously gone on to do a whole lot more right. than what he had done prior to that. Although he'd done Nevermind prior to that, so um, and just a sweetheart of Good a guy. Point. I try to talk to him about once a year and and uh, and catch up a little bit. But uh, yeah, did he serve as like a mentor for you for a while? Or oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a, uh, again. It was an awesome opportunity uh, to be an engineer on that record. To Butch is a is a very talented engineer in his own right and so it was a uh, it was a great learning experience to do a record that was kind of on that level mm. you know that was uh i guess you could say it was the first kind of big record that i'd worked on i'd been okay uh in the business for i don't know about eight years and and had the opportunity to do that one it was just it was you know an awesome opportunity and um well jimmy chamberlain is just an out of this world drummer uh was was he uh a, a pretty quick take as far as getting the, his stuff done yeah yeah B- jimmy jimmy and billy they're both you know top-notch uh, musicians and, and jimmy i mean again one of the one of the super talents to work with because he just he's such an awesome player he's he's you know there were they weren't some weren't easy songs to do but he's a, he's just you know he was definitely up to the task uh and uh again without jimmy it was pretty much jimmy and billy with that record james played a little bit on it i think darcy may have had one bass track that she cut on there but i don't i don't know if that's even right again after this many years my memory yeah i know billy played almost everything okay um well switching gears then to why i have you on um uh coming in at number i think it was 21 on the list was the jerry cantrell 2002 record i believe degradation trip uh, initially, my understanding is that Dave Jordan was going to produce it, but there was some, oh, whatever, him and Jerry weren't vibing together at the time. How did you end up getting the, the producer's seat for that record? Uh, at the time, I had a, a manager out in Los Angeles, uh, Aaron Jacobus, who was uh, had been at Virgin for years before that and in Mercury and other labels. And uh, it, it came across him, you know, it came across his uh calls or whatever that there was a, a, a need for that and so he'd called me and said that what they, what was looking to happen that jerry was looking to to basically bring an engineer in to do it and, and uh, he said would you be interested i said absolutely so within 24 hours jerry had me on the phone and just kind of described that he's going to be a long record i want to do a double album it's 
you know, I started with Dave Jordan. I've done worked with him before. He said it just didn't work out. He says, I've got the band ready. It was Mike Borden and Robert Trujillo. And he said, and, uh, he says, I just want to know, are you into doing it? <laughs> so it was that easy on that end of it. Uh, the, the first wave, I guess you could say, I was out for 12 weeks cutting, cutting tracks. I did a lot of traveling back and forth. I'm based out of uh, a little north of Atlanta. Okay. Um, and so, you know, it turned into a, a, a 10 month record basically on and off uh, with that. And, uh, not long into it, Jerry kind of approached me and says, you know, I need a co-pilot on this. He says, I'd like to offer you a co-production on it, which was just, you know, to me, that was amazing. Um, so it was, you know, a lot of challenges with that record. Again, a lot of songs we did. Some of the stuff was spaced out uh, through the 10 months. Mm -hmm. So there wasn't this consistently. We go in and do the record and we're done. Um, Jerry's a, just a super talented guy. Again, I've been blessed with working with some really talented artists um, just from his his uh, vocal arrangements to his guitar playing to his songwriting just it was just again one of those experiences that that uh really really was great for me now what um what what actually changed then as far as your role when you basically went from being just the engineer to now being a, 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 a getting a producer credit on it were you now more vocal in in how songs were structured and arranged no, and and uh, right off the bat, it was, it was more of a uh, it was more of a production role where where put it put the record together. Uh, it was because it's just Jerry. Once we were done with the basic tracks with the drums and bass, it was Jerry that had to do everything else. Okay. And just to kind of keep everything going, keep things moving, keep forward uh, progress, because it wasn't always easy. There would be t days that he wouldn't show up to the studio and you know just trying to keep within some sort of a budget <laughs> you know um so <laughs> he was paying for it out of pocket if i if i read right he was originally on he was on columbia and was dropped uh during early part of that i think after we'd gotten into it maybe six or eight weeks and then he just said well I, you know i'm really passionate about doing this record i'm gonna i'll figure out a way i'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna fund it and and he did um, and then it sat on the shelf. We started the record in July. I remember exactly July 5th, 1999 and finished it, finished, uh, mastering and everything the following year in 2000, right around March. And then it sat on the shelf cause he was looking for a label. So two years went by and, and he wound up signing the roadrunner roadrunner contacted me, day and our guy, Monty Connor and said, we want to remaster the record. We're going to have George Marino do it in New York. Uh, where are the, <laughs> where are the tapes? Huh. Because it was all, again, it was tape. We've recorded the tape. I did editing in Pro Tools, but when I mixed it, it I mixed it all down to a half-inch two-track. And so um, it was like, okay, well, we have to find those. So, you know, a year and a half had gone by, almost <laughs> two years, he started to find those tapes. And uh, they, they, his uh, Jerry's management at the time was able to dig, dig it up. The big scare was I got a call from the A&R guy, and he said uh, – because there were 80 reels of half-inch tape because I had – some of the songs were long. There were alternate takes, alternate versions of mixes, all that stuff. So imagine 80 reels of half-inch tape that FedEx was going to ship to Sterling Sound in New York. <laughs> and uh, they said uh, the tapes didn't show up. And I said, you got to be kidding me. He said, do you have backups? I said, I have DAT backups, but we're not going to master off the DAT. And so fortunately, a, a day or had day or two later, they showed up. Uh, I don't know. They got lost a minute in transit, but it was a little bit scary. Wow. Those are the master tapes. You realize that. Yeah. That's all we have. So. Unreal. Uh, got it done. George Marino, who's, you know, amazing career as a mastering engineer. His name is on left. half of my CDs. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So it was that was a. I got a, a bone to pick with him though, him. Jeff. He really fucked up that first issue of Kiss CDs. I had to rebuy a bunch of them when they fixed them. Oh well, <laughs> I blame you him. know. <laughs> CDs in general, man. Uh, when they when they first went from vinyl mm-hmm. to that, were a little rough. I mean, yeah. I'm a huge Beatles fan, and the first round of Beatles stuff were just awful. I mean, awful when it came out on CDs. So uh, probably because George again, Marino did them. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I have no idea who that. I, 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 yeah, George. George was an amazingly talented guy. Again, I, I've I've been blessed in my career to work with some really talented people. Uh, so anyway, the record came out on Roadrunner, and Roadrunner's mm-hmm. caveat was. Okay, we're not going to put out a double record. Jerry was adamant that this record needs to be a double record. It needs to be in the sequence it is. And they said, well, here's here's the deal we'll cut with you. Here's the compromise. We're going to put out a single record with, I don't know, 14, whatever songs were on the original. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then we'll do as a tribute, we'll put out the double album at the end of the year. And they did. They followed through on it and put, put that out. Um, so... You know, that's that's kind of how that the layout went of that and in the time frame to, to get, you know, get everything done the second time around, I guess you could say, because have it remastered because we had it mastered. Everything was done at the end of two, uh, middle of March of 2000. It was done. Mm-hmm. But then it was just like, OK, now I got to shop labels. <laughs> so we did. Uh, how familiar were you with like Alice in Chains? And, you know, Jerry also had one solo record prior to that. Um, were you a fan? Was this something you really wanted or was it, you know? Oh, of- Yeah. Yeah, it was a great opportunity. When my manager told me that, it's like, wow, that's, yeah. Because, I mean, you think of Alice in Chains, what a what a landmark kind of band, kind of sound, everything to do with that. And uh, uh, and then I thought his solo record, I love that solo record that he'd put out um, after the Alice in Chains stuff. Boggy Depot. So, Boggy Depot. Great record. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was, I was very aware of, of who he was and what he had done. And uh, I didn't know at the time who the who the players were, which was also a treat because Mike Borden's had has great history as a drummer mm-hmm. with Faith No More and that. And Robert, you know, Robert's with Metallica now, but he'd done all kinds of you know great yeah. stuff. He, he and Mike were both with Ozzy at the time, and they were on a break from the road. And Jerry had uh, got those guys involved, and we did the record. But it was you know the challenge was Jerry hand me a couple of cassette tapes from day one and said these are the demos these are the arrangements that's the tempos i like that's what that make that happen okay and we're talking cassettes and cassettes you know the tempos the cassettes vary <laughs> a little bit tempo wise and there weren't any drums on it so trying to figure out the arrangements and kind of the 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 whatever how how many bars in the chorus how many bars in the verse it's kind of hard to count some of the stuff you know so anyway that was part of, of putting it together and it just you know part of the job uh, on that, real quick, because that sounds fascinating. So, um, did you work with um, uh, Robert and, and uh, Borden um, without Jerry, and just kind of like get these things laid down, or there was no like yeah, scratch? So, so, well, some days. I mean, the the very first day in the studio, I show up at at eleven o'clock in the morning. The uh, the gear starts showing up around noon, and Robert and uh, and and. Uh, Mike show up and they're like, okay. They said, uh, have you worked with Jerry before? I said, no. I said, well, he's a rock star. We just want to let you know. And I said, okay, whatever that meant. So <laughs> 830 that night, Jerry shows up. So we've been there all day. Jerry shows up ready to go. So so we go through, you know, a little bit, just kind of get sounds and kind of get everybody feeling good and loose in there. And But there were, yeah, there were days where Jerry wouldn't show up and it'd be like, okay, we've got to get this, at least get the bass and drums down on this song. Um so we'd go through stuff like that. Then okay. sometimes we'd get a a, a a 
a good scratch track of Jerry's guitar the day before and something we're working on. So I was able to use that, but you know, there, it was not without its challenges. Um, was, was anything written in the studio? It sounds like he had a lot of this stuff kind of planned out and what he was doing, but was, was anything yeah. like written while you guys were recording? No, he had, like I said, he had the whole record. He'd, he'd lived it and breathed it as in, in demo forms in his place okay. in Seattle. So it, that was exactly what it was. I think there was, there was one song and I can't, I cannot remember the name of it that we didn't, we didn't get recorded. I think we wanted to do 26. We wound up doing 25 songs, which is a lot of material, especially yeah. <laughs> considering some of them like pig charmers, eight and a half minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. that's two songs in one. So. What about the guitar tone? Because I, um, I'll, I'll pat you, give you, pat you on the back a little bit here. You're going to have a hard time finding a thicker, better, just crunchy metal guitar tone. I mean, and it just fit the mood of the record. How much time did you spend dialing that in? And it's kind of a second question: How many layers of uh, rhythm tracks are there typically on you know on the, the, the songs? You'll get a kick out of it because it's so honest. Well, first of all, the guitar tone. Jerry shows up in it that. At that point, he had he was playing through fifty one fifties, but he had some. And, and I said, I tell you what, a great guitar amp is. And I'd worked with a band just prior to that band, Atlanta band called Double Drive, and the guitar player had just bought a Bogner Shiva, which is mm. kind of their their, I wouldn't say cheapest version, but it's their basic amp. But it's like an old Marshall. It's got EL eighty fours in it or EL thirty fours in it, and uh, that kind of thing. And he had a cabinet, and it was just the tightest, just awesome rock sound so i said this is what you need to try and jerry said well he says i like my you know 5150s he said i've got these old bogner preamps he said but they don't work and i said just let's just get a guy to let's rent one and and once he did he says i'm buying these so he, <laughs> he became a bogner guy for a bit because again they were just i'm, I'm still a fan of, of the bogner shivas as far as layering goes it's pretty honest it's pretty much just left right and center um, oh, in the okay. lead track, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of layers. We did maybe some clean stuff that are layered in there, but but um, it was it was just just straight up rock and roll, real real honest kind of. Um, I also discovered the uh, the Royer ribbon mic, which they just had kind of got going, um, and it's become just you know if you know anything about the ribbon, there it's the Royer one twenty one, right. and they just. You know, the studio, we cut the record at A&M, which is now Henson. It was A&M then, but and they, I was using the, their old ribbon mics, and they said, man, you're blowing up the capsules and blowing up the ribbon. You know? <laughs> Why don't you try these? The Royer company is letting us borrow some. And I said, as long as I'm not responsible, I said, I'm happy to try them. They said, you can put them right in front of a cabinet. And, we'll, and they did, and they were just, you know, that was where I got turned on to that. So that's a big part of the sound, too, is the, the ribbon mics are just beautiful on, on, uh, on guitars. Yeah, it, it, honest to God, Jeff, it is just a fabulous sounding record, and the guitar tones just punch you in the face. So, well, I appreciate it. It was, and you know, we also had the the, the luxury of, of we had a a great guitar tech that that I had hired that I'd worked with pre previous. His name is Brett Allen, an Australian guy in L.A., and he had just, I mean, at one point, I bet we had fifty guitars. He had just some really nice, hmm. nice, uh, and Jerry had a you know nice batch of guitars also so between that we just had so many choices and so many colors just to grab some no here's a 62 uh, sg let's try that solo on she was my girl oh that's great perfect you know that kind of thing so that always makes makes my job easier from a sound standpoint yeah. and uh because you again you've got such a palette to work with yeah, I, I try to tell my wife this is why I need another guitar. I, I just, <laughs> of course, 
course. I, I might just need it one time, but I have to have it. Um, I swear I got questions specific to the record, but uh, it's always fascinating in talking to somebody uh, in, in your line of work. Um, with mixing, obviously that's a big part of production, but I know some producers kind of will, will pass that task off onto somebody else. To me, isn't mixing one of the most important roles in production? I mean, well, what's your thoughts on that, I guess? Is, no, I would, I would agree. I mean, as you go through the process, you, you've got your pre-production, then you have your tracking, then the mixing, and then the mastering. And every link in the chain, it should get progressively better. And it's interesting that, that I had actually had a discussion with Jerry towards the end of the recording. And uh, I said, well, I said, what are you going to do about mixing? He says, I want to keep it in the family. He says, I want you to mix it. So Nice. Which was great because a lot of times, you know, you do a record – from whatever standpoint, and, and it's probably not necessarily a bad thing that somebody else mixes it because they bring a fresh perspective. But I was so far inside that record at that point, it was it was really good to be able to mix it. How many songs could you mix in one day? <laughs> well, like, I, mean, well I, was, I was mixing a song a day. Uh, yeah, okay, that's kind of where I'm going. I mean, you really spend a lot of time just on one song as far as a mix, correct? You're not like trying to get half a, a record done, you know, like and punch the clock. Yeah, and the other thing is, is at, at that point I had a, a, a I had before studios kind of had a, a common Pro Tools rigs in them. Uh, we cut it to tape and then we'd bounce it in and I'd edit and we worked off of that. And then when I wound up mixing it, I took the the dual twenty four tape machines and bounced them to a forty eight track digital, so I didn't have to lock machines together. But um, but yeah, it was uh, it was a song a day until we kind of you know we hit a stall where. Because pretty much I mix it, Jerry'd come in and he'd you know make some comments and we'd sign off on it and move on because this is still in the day where you had to recall the console. It was an SSL and you had to, you know, it wasn't like it is today. I can just open a Pro Tools session, make a tweak, and I'm done with the recall. Right. So we got to a point where I think I had gotten to Anger Rising, which was the first single, and uh, and I didn't see him for almost a week. And so I just said, you know what, we're just let's just bail on the studio for and save a little bit of money. And uh, I said, I can't sit here and keep tweaking on the mix because there's nothing else you can do to it. So um, there were there were times like that. But again, mainly a song a day, unless it was something that was, like I said, a pig charmer, which is eight minutes, eight plus. So it's a little bit of a challenge to kind of get through that. But uh, uh Thank God for automation. That's what I'll say. <laughs> uh, do, do you like the way it's gone with Pro Tools? And it sounds like, yeah, you know, I, I, I my introduction into Pro Tools was on the uh, I did the first uh, Matchbox Twenty record, hmm. and so my introduction was Pro Tools there because I was a tape guy, and Matt Serletic that produced the record said we're gonna, you know, we're gonna go into this this new format, and, and I thought that's kind of visual recording. I don't I don't know if I want to do that. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, it was. There was a blessing in the fact that I was able to to t- spend the three plus months on that record and and learn how to use Pro Tools and and that was was at ninety six so that's that many years later I've, I've become a pretty you know pretty consistent Pro Tools user yeah of course um, you know I got to tell you sometime I need somebody in your of your ilk to sit down and actually show me like back the old school tape where you would run a a piece of chalk down it and a and a razor blade you know cuz you know I've done that in pro tools and I but you know you go whoops and you hit undo you don't have that when you're taking a blade to a piece of tape um I, I toured Princess Paisley Park studio and that was the closest I got to one of the machines that showed how to 
that they used to do that, but I, 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 I can't wrap my head around it. How effective that is, you know. I, I hear all these stories. I'm like, how are they not just jacking up most of the stuff they do? You could be a second off, and it would be just a hair bit of tape, right? Oh well, yeah. I mean, the, the tape machines are moving at thirty inches per second, so there's a little bit of leeway, but not oh, much. And, all right. And it's interesting that that. I was just having this conversation with an artist yesterday, and he had a videographer, and, and the guy said said uh, something about Pro Tools and, and Smashing Pumpkins. I said, no, no, that was tape. I said, all that was blade edited. I said, as a matter of fact, the song Mayonnaise had so many edits in it, we had to actually oh, transfer it because it was going to fall apart, the tape. Cause, you know. But the thing is, I, I was again, I was able to, early on in my career to – to start editing quarter inch voiceovers and get good with that. Then you move up to half inch. Then, you know, the first time I cut a two inch tape, it was, you know, really scared. It was really nervous. It's like, this is the master, <laughs> you know, you, there's no undo yeah! nowadays. And the, the other challenge in that is, is just, is just keeping track of, you know, so you, you take the chorus out of, of take five that you like on, on one of the songs you put a piece of tape on it and stick it on the wall and let the rest of it just hang in a pile on the floor. <laughs> so then when you get to that point, okay, I need that chorus from take five. So so it's just a matter. I, I don't think about it because you don't think about it because that's the only way we did it back then. It's all yeah. we knew. But now when I think about it today, it makes me kind of like nauseous. It's just like how in the world did that ever work out? It's like a teenager looking at a rotary phone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I still, I mean, I understand conceptually how it works, but I cannot for the life of me figure it like, out. It's like, that has to get jacked up weight. But you hear these guys, oh, yeah, we did a ton of it on this one song. I'm like, man, I can see like one chorus or one solo, but Jesus, some of this stuff. Anyway, enough on that. <laughs> Sorry. All right. Well, back to the record. Um, the album kind of comes across as almost a concept record. I don't know um, if you can speak deliberately to this, but, you know, like it definitely it almost feels knowing what we know now, because as we know, Lane died it well after it was recorded and, and even after it was released initially. But it sounds an awful lot like a conceptual record about the life of Lane Staley. Well, it was. I'll put it. I don't know that it was necessarily that. I, I know that it was it was a. a a record written in out of darkness, uh, drug abuse, darkness, and and whether it's Jerry's or Lane's or whatever, um, that's a lot of songs kind of point in that direction. And, and between that and some of the songs about the the not necessarily the high times of of a rock star's life, right. you know. Uh, so again, I I don't know. I I can't speak specific because Jerry and I never really discussed it. It's it's definitely a dark record. I mean, Mike Borden said it's like modern. It's a modern blues record. Hmm. Is was was his hmm. take on it. Yeah. And uh, again, yeah, his his whole concept all the way down to the sequencing of the album because the double the double record that came out was exactly what the sequence he wanted before when it was still on you know cassettes. So Jerry had a, had a vision for that and and you know finally saw it through. Uh, there were so con- you're saying times. like when when he can when he was like sequencing it, he was factoring in the idea that people were going to be flipping a, a, a tape. Yeah, probably so. Um, uh, again, I don't know. I don't know the the brain his brain behind. Okay, that. I, I, I was just reading into what you said there. So carry on. Sorry. Well, yeah, I mean, but it was it was. I think it was more of a flow thing, and I think it actually came from also from how he he wrote the record originally, and how he kind of wanted to flow from song to song and, and tell whatever the story is on it you know uh, one of my favorite songs on the record is 3132 and it's a ballad song that. but it's so long and and i've just racked my brains it's like 
it'd be great to get this song out as a ballad and get it down to you know radio link but there was just no way to cut it without changing the story and the story is is all that's what that song is um i have something very specific to that coming up so maybe you'll uh, elaborate a little more when okay. i get there um but yeah the, with the one song even the title almost just shouts this is about lane staley was bargain basement howard hughes you know, at this point lane was basically just a rec- recluse at least jerry yeah. had been somewhat public with you know releasing boggy depot and working on this so yeah he he was he was I mean, he was almost to a point where he he, he was a recluse, and, and part of it was because he, he was not physically able to really get around anymore. Yeah. So he had did, abused himself so much. Did you guys actually talk about Lane very much? Did you know anything about what was happening behind the scenes at that time? Not a lot. I mean, he, he you know, he, he, he and, he and uh, you know, Lane were brothers, and so in, in that respect, and, and so he had obviously a high regard for him but he didn't he didn't really discuss it much there was one at one point he when we were uh had some mixes and stuff i remember mm-hmm. uh, jerry had left for a weekend or something and actually took it and played stuff for lane came back and said you know he really dug it it was you know he was real proud of and all that kind of stuff so so that was kind of a nice thing because again i've got a lot of respect for the talent of, of all those guys oh yeah and what they were were able to do it's interesting because they he had some old demos of some stuff that they did prior to Alice in Chains, and we were playing them in the studio without Jerry before he came in, and, and it was like, oh, man, this stuff's bad. This sounds like bad – it sounds like rat or, or bad metal or whatever <laughs> you want to call it. And, and so I remember this engineer, the assistant engineer on the project was a good friend of mine. He says, here comes Jerry. He says, stop laughing about it. And I says, no, I'm going to laugh about it. And Jerry came in and says, yeah, it is funny. It's, it's pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> it's like any band. No band starts off great. Exactly. Everybody's got their growing pains. You should be able to laugh at yourself. Yeah. Right. You yeah. hear that, Paul Stanley? It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you like that joke? <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, that, that's that's a that's a joke for our listeners of the show. Um, <laughs> well, can can you comment at all on the state of mind of of Jerry di- during this time? I mean, this you don't get much darker than than the mood on this album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he he was he was pretty deep into his own uh, personal demons at the time, also. Um, which explains some of the not showing up and okay. and some of the interesting calls I would get at different times to to ready to work and and that kind of stuff. So yeah, he definitely had a had a dark path during that. And uh, I, as everyone knows now, he's he's in great shape and he's doing well and, mm-hmm. and they're having uh, still having great success. So that's I'm I'm so happy that that's the way that turned out because yeah, you were not you know, breaking any secrets that he was dealing with his own demons at that time, but yeah. yeah. So. Yeah, yeah, and and you know it's you can't any record I've ever made, but one that, that took the time that that took, you can't help but get really close to people and yeah. know people really well during that. Uh, it, making records, somebody had said at one point, it's like a marriage, and so at the end, it's it's kind of sad because it's kind of breaking up and it's over. Um, <laughs> That's <laughs> a it was, great it was way also, to just, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, it was also during the time we started that record because I'd worked, I'd spent about three years working with a producer, Paul Fox, out in Los Angeles and working at A&M. That was kind of our place. And I really just fell in love with the studio. So I knew when uh, when we were asked to do the record, I was asked to do the record that that's where we were going to go. Well, we went through the whole cycle of, the, of all the way through it closing down and Henson buying it. So it's like, okay, well, this is the last day. So we did, it was, it was, uh, it was kind of sad, and then we was like, okay, we have to find some studios. So we found some other places to kind of finish the, the recording of it, and then I get a call 
first part of January from the studio manager. It was A&M. When it turned to Henson, he said, he said we're back in business. He said, uh, any chance you want to mix the record here? I said, absolutely, because the studio didn't change. It was the same gear and all that mm-hmm. all that great stuff, just the name changed. So it was nice to be able to go back to the familiar place and mix that record because they've got a great mix room, always have. Uh, talk a little bit about the vibe in the studio. Was it somewhat uh, up and down? Or was it uh, like, I guess I'm, I'm trying to describe this a little bit. Like, would there be days where it was just like, we're not going to get shit done today because of the, yeah. the you know, um, and because you, like you said, you sat with this a long, you worked with him a long time. I mean, was there a general kind of a dark vibe the whole time? Uh, for the most part, yeah. I mean, there, there were, there were some funny times in there and he, he's, when he's, when he was, you know, doing well. It was there were some funny times, and it was it was fun. I mean, every record that you you ever make, there's there's. I always said that you have a day or so that where you have what I call used to call the lulls. I said, <laughs> but we had weeks where we would do that at times, and so. And there was a point in the record where I just said I walked away from it, and I, I called his. Um, I called his. He didn't really have a, a manager at the time. He had a business manager, but he also he had his attorney. And uh, the attorney's assistant, I finally called her and said, I'm going home. And she said, he called, well, I talked to him actually. And he said, well, are you just, you're going home so you can kind of uh, push him to, to get back into the, into the, making the record. I said, no, I said, I'm going home because I can't do the job you've hired me to do. Hmm. I said, if there, if, you know, so I, I was home and I'd walked away from it, which was tough because we'd spent so much time on it. And uh, yeah. they said, well, we're, you know, and they contacted me in a couple of weeks and said, well, we're going to have to move forward. We're going to find somebody else to finish the record. And I said, fine. And so I pondered it for another couple of weeks. But a whole month went by, and I, I called them back, and they, they said, well, we haven't really found anybody. We're not really <laughs> – haven't been actively looking. And I says, okay, I'm back in. I said, but here's here's the way it's got to be. Of course, it didn't wind up that way, yeah. but <laughs> at least I, I tried to lay down a little bit of structure to it. Yeah, and, and I'm not going to put words in your mouth. These are mine. I'm starting to see what the issue was with Dave Jordan, maybe. Um, Good, Yeah. Um, but, uh, let me, you know, let me ask you this. Cause you actually just commented on something that I think was interesting on, on the amount of time you spend and you get connected not only to the people, but how about the project? Were there times, cause you, you're, you're basically so deep into this. Did, did the subject matter ever actually take a personal toll on you? Like, like almost add a little weight to things. And I'm not saying in a, in a sense that. I'm, did it ever kind of depress you a little bit as you oh, left sure. the studio? It's like Jesus, fuck. Yeah, what are we doing? What, I mean, what's what's going on? It, it, we, it, there were there were certain times in the record where we were on totally different schedules, and mm. and he actually sat down and we had a discussion. He said, he says, <laughs> it's a funny story because he said, here's what I think we need to do. Jerry said, he said, I think we need to get pagers. That way I can page you whenever I'm – I says, no, I'm not going to do that. He says, he says, come on. We can be like doctors. And I said, but we're not doctors. And I said, I said, I need I need some sort of schedule. I said, I don't care when you want to work. I said, I don't care if you want to work the night shift, the grave, whatever. I said, but it needs to be consistent. He said, well, what are you talking about? I said, I don't know. Pick something. I said, Let, let's say we start at 6 p.m. at night. And uh, and he said, okay, that sounds fine. And I said, but that means at 6 p.m. you got a guitar strapped on, we're plugged in, and we're ready to go. He says, well, you better make it seven. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that you know, there was that kind of stuff, and and we also we also ran a dad a lot of times to catch some of the the, the funny because he's he's a funny guy. Some of the funny stuff he would say, and, and uh, he was for what for whatever reason he was actually he was so hooked on 
on those hot dogs from the convenience store hot dogs, which have to be disgusting. Uh, but that's mm. all he wanted. And he would send a runner out and he said, just make sure they're hot. And he says, I want two of those hot dogs and I want, you know, relish, but dill pickle relish, not sweet pickle and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So sounds like Jerry um, and I have the same uh, taste in uh, uh, convenience <laughs> store hot dogs. If that's what you dig, then that, that once was in a while, man, uh, those pieces of crap are just scrapping. But. You just can't do it all the time. No, no, right, right. Yeah, that that might be the distinction, huh? Yeah. <laughs> but we did, you know, "Anger Rising" was a song that did uh, made me think about this. That he wrote with Chris DeGarmo from Queensrÿche, mm. and uh, Chris came down one day, and I was a huge Empire. Was I wore that CD out, you know, in the when it came out in the late eighties. You and me both. It, and so it was like, oh, man, Chris DeGarmo's coming here. So Chris shows up, and he said, where's Jerry? And I said, I don't know. He says, is he going to be here today? I said, I don't know. And he did. He wasn't. But anyway, he said, well, let me go ahead and put parts on here because uh, Jerry had asked me to come in and put some stuff on the song mm. we wrote together. So he did, and uh, and that was just, you know, over – that was just a day, you know. And there were it was just real at times. There were times where, where people would pop in the studio, and, and I remember, well – What's the singer's name from Duran Duran? Simon LeBon. Yep, Simon LeBon. He, he came in and he's talking to Robert, and but he's oh hammered or whatever. But he's thinking Robert's Jerry, so he's talking to him about stuff like that. <laughs> just different, you know. There were it was a it was a sideshow at times. There was um, uh, Twiggy Ramirez would hang out occasionally until I said he can't come here anymore, Jerry. Yeah, bad influence <laughs> on a bad influence. Yes. Uh, who, which who's a, who's the bad influence there? Uh, I know it doesn't matter, but it was Simon like, LeBon <laughs> hammered talking to it was DeGarmo. You're saying talk, no talking to Robert Trujillo. Oh, Robert, thinking Robert Trujillo <laughs> of all people yes. is Jerry. Oh my lord, that's a visual. Because assistant engineer came over to me. He says, "Dude," he said, "That's." I said, "I know who that is." He says, "Well, he thinks that that's Jerry. He's talking to him about the record." <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Jerry's, just, Jerry's cut a wide path, and he had a lot of you know. Uh, what's what's the bass player Ben Shepard from uh, Stone Temple yeah. Pilot? Uh, not Stone Temple yep. Pilot. Uh, Soundgarden. Uh, Soundgarden came in uh, to to see him, and of course he wasn't there either. I mean, I'd get calls from Jerry's dad. Jerry, they had a, in Oklahoma have a quarter horse ranch, and he'd call mm-hmm. us. Is, is Jerry there? And so I got to know his dad pretty well. <laughs> no, sir, he's not here right now. He said, Tell him to call me when he gets there. Uh, did you happen to see the cover before it came out? No, uh-uh. Man, that is a messed up cover, man. It is messed up. That's, again, that's that mind of Jerry in, in that era. It fits. I mean, it, it, fits, it fits completely. What's odd, what's funny about it is, I don't know if it's in the back or somewhere, and it's the picture of the, of the three guys, but they weren't together when they shot them. They were just, it was mm. all Photoshopped together. <laughs> like yeah. They took it. Early as, days of Photoshop a, and Pro Tools we're talking now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, let me get your thoughts on a handful of the songs. Um, okay. Now, for the uh, uh, for the the series I'm doing, I'm sticking to whatever Rolling Stone went with. This is one of the cases where they the album they have on there is the original release, not the actual full fledged release. Um, but I do have a, a, a comment, especially on thirty one thirty two. Since I'm talking to you, I might as well get into that as well. But bargain basement, Howard Hughes. Any thoughts on recording that one? Do you, any memories there? Like, what do you what do you think of the songs? Any of these questions I ask are really just any memories or, or sure. anecdotes you have from that. Well, it, you know, it that was that and, and psychotic break. I think were one of the first couple couple that we cut, and okay. just from the the tracking of it, I, I just knew it was going to be this kind of just brutal, heavy sound because just from from what it is. But you know, the lyrical content of it, of course, is 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 so interesting because 
some of the I think Jerry it, it had kind of walked the path as Howard Hughes did at some point because there were certain things that if you watch that movie that well Leonardo DiCaprio played mm-hmm. uh, Jerry kind of had that there were saying things that went on in that movie when he kind of became a recluse that Jerry kind of mirrored so and which I think he did that he had done that prior anyway I know he did not I don't think prior to to showing up at the studio when he was writing the record he's just pretty much he said I locked myself in my house didn't go out I had food brought in he said didn't get out of bed for days that kind of stuff wow and and to be honest with you we that's how we did vocals he said when I to start with he said when I do vocals when I did vocals he says I was real comfortable just kind of laying in my bed and holding the mic and I said okay so I sent a runner out and, and they they bought a futon down store down the street from A&M and it just fit in the uh, in the vocal booth mm. and I said okay I don't care if you want to stand on your head because I've always had that thought process it's however whatever it takes to get a vocal I don't care what you want to do you want to be naked that's fine too I don't care <laughs> and so we, we did that for a little bit where he shoved that bed in there turn all the lights out and he just you know I don't know how you sing how you get a breath how you can sing like that but I'm not a singer so what do I know yeah I'm with you just an interesting story yeah yeah, okay. So so that would have been used on this song for sure? Yeah, yeah. Uh, what about the single, Anger Rising? I mean, uh, another killer track. Uh, oh. I knew that was going to be the single from, from the first time I heard it, uh, at least in my heart. I said, that. now that's a great song. And that's, you know, and that's obviously a song about him growing up and his dad and, and, uh, uh, and the struggles that he and his mom went through with that, uh, mm-hmm. with his dad and stuff. And he lost his mom... Uh, years prior to us working together and that that was definitely obviously painful i mean you know i lost mine about eight years ago so i understand now but um but anyway it's uh uh that was kind of the the idea with that song and and so um again i I think that it was a really strong melody and it was really strong riff the problem with that song was it was too long it was like five and a half minutes long and uh and we didn't cut it down because Jerry wasn't willing to change his arrangements. Well, clocks in at eight, six minutes and 14 seconds, Jeff. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. <laughs> but we did cut it down because the A&R That's the cut, cut down. Oh, oh, for the single they did. Okay. For the single, it got cut down. But uh, but I I wasn't involved in it. And I wish I had had been because the edit's pretty not good. Okay. But anyway. All right. The, and, and he said, can we get it down to three and a half? And I told the I said, no. So they'll never get the three and a half. What it what it was as a single was, I don't know, four eighteen. I can't remember exactly, but they did cut it down. And then he shot a video for it. That was the first video. Um, and uh, the song, uh, just real quickly, that song "She Was My Girl" that's on there. I don't know if it's on the main one or the double. It is. Yes. It was on the Spider Man soundtrack. And uh, before I was, yeah. Well, no, not before. It was on the Spider Man. That what we did. Went on the spot. One of the Spider Man. Okay, movies. after the album was released. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and so it was like, okay, this is great. This will be good, good advertiser for this because there's other artists that are going to be involved in it, but it didn't. <laughs> so, uh, which uh, is another good song. That was that was the closest to a pop song I think Jerry's ever written in my. That mind. had a very Stone Temple Pilots vibe, if you don't mind me saying. Uh, yeah. Um, I said this is a pop song. This is total pop. Yeah. Um, I- I had that on my uh, list to ask you about, so thank you for getting into that. But <laughs> yeah, so I'm getting I get ahead of myself. The oh song, no, no, whatever. Uh, yeah, what's the song? Jeez, uh, 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 hell. Um, oh, hell, like uh, what is it? Hell. But then she's a duck girl. Is that? Oh no, that's that's another. Yeah, that's another killer song. That's. Uh, um, that's oh, that not... is she was my girl. Okay. Yeah. 
I'm thinking of uh, Hellbound. Oh, which the killer fucking track. Just had a had this incredibly long intro, and I told him, I said, "We got to cut the intro down. It's taken, you know." And I just was never into that song. And and I guess the word got back to Jerry. Somebody said it. People talk in the studio. He says, "So you don't like this?" I said, "It's just, you know, it's." I'm more of a pop single kind of guy as far as editing goes. Okay. Anyway, he says, well, I'm thinking maybe uh, maybe I sell it to Ozzy. Maybe Ozzy would be a good song for Ozzy. <laughs> so never happened on the record and never got edited down. It is what it is. But um, Spider Bite. Now, that's another uh, that's a, another just brutal kind of heavy you know, riff rock song. Was there any talk about any of these this stuff being written to to do with Alice in Chains, or was that like basically was Jerry just aware that Lane was just never going to be back? Yeah, he he was totally aware this this was never going to be. I, I, and I talked to him. I remember talking to him after the record and said, "Yes, it's interesting. Some of the people either say you it sounds too much like Alice in Chains, mm. or it doesn't sound enough." I said, "You can't win." And I said, "But but it's sounding too much like Alice in Chains. The fact is that he was Alice. Oh, well, right. He wrote all those yeah. that those those close harmonies, all that stuff. That's Jerry." I said, "Where'd you learn to to do that kind of stuff?" He said, "Boys Choir." Man, so, yeah, I think this would have been a brilliant. Alice in Chains album. I love the record, but if you would have, if like in a perfect world, I'm saying, yeah, uh, but yeah, yeah. like this would have been a great like sequel to Dirt. Um, I think this would rival anything they've done since that record. I honestly, I do. Um, I, and I think you know, especially going back to it now, I, I forgot you know like how good it was. It's just like there's really some strong stuff on here, and um, I, I look. I might think it's a little bloated, but uh, you know, but there is so many things to dissect in this thing, and it sounds like you, you're kind of getting to there. But can I it's circle a deep back? Record. Can I get back to Anger Rising? I just wanted to make yeah. one comment, and that was that the way that melody, like that uh, Alabama Trailer Park, that part, like the, the verse melody, goes yep. over that rhythm is one of the most perfect things ever written in, in rock and metal. It just it yep. flows so smoothly. It's just. I bet that came to him in like ten seconds. Well, I, he was man. He was so fast with with parts and, and harmonies and melody and stuff. And and he'd go in the booth. And why I mentioned Spider Bite is is he'd lay down a part and then he'd lay down another harmony and another one. And he says, "All right, give me another track." I said, "You can't have another harmony there." <laughs> and, he, and not that you can't. There's no way. Be like, How, what's gonna? What are you gonna put? And he'd come up with another harmony. And it's just wow. his his sense of of harmony and melody is is pretty amazing. Um, well, let, now this kind of ties into a question I have about the sequencing of the two different releases. I don't know when the album came out, obviously I probably until about the last few years, I had no idea that this was actually conceptually different. I, I didn't know why they did the second version. Um, but, uh, this, the, the album ends with gone, which to me is a perfect closer. And if you look at the, the 14 track listing, when you listen to this album, it sounds like an album that was sequenced and, and written and recorded like this is how it's supposed to be. So uh, first of all, what are your thoughts on the song gone? I absolutely love it. Love it. Love it. I, 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 I gotta say, I'm, I'm such a fan of the, of the huge, uh, or huge fan of the, um, of the ballady kind of mellower. Okay. Almost, that's almost country, you know? It's, yeah, it really is. It, it's got that kind of vibe to it. As a matter of fact, on Gone, um, was it Gone? No, Gone's the one he's playing as a dobro, as an acoustic, and it was it was just a cheap dobro too. As a matter of fact, um, but it just seemed to work in that song. But um, th- that one and uh, and see, I'm I, I'm drawing a blank on the name. The other 
ballad that's got the tremolo effect on the vocals. Uh, Lord, I can't remember. But anyway, I, I, I like all of all of those in the in the solitude. Was, no, no, that's not it. Uh, solitude. Oh, yeah, oh. that's it. Yep. And the challenge, though, on like Gone and Thirty One, Thirty Two, Mike Mike Borden's a great rock drummer. He's a pounder. But mm. when you get him to try to play light and sensitive and <laughs> that kind of thing, it was a challenge. And I, you know, I would say, look. You got to play just like you're just dropping the the stick on the snare head. You can't just pound it like you do on everything else. So, I mean, you can't relearn stuff like that in the studio. And so, there it was a it was a challenge to mix it and get it to sound more like a ballad and not have that rock and roll kick drum and that yeah. you know. Um. Well, that as good as a closer is that I couldn't believe when I actually heard the resequenced record, it actually flowed much better. Um, and 3132 might be, I mean, especially for this record, it is just, well, first of all, it's depressing as fuck, yeah. but it is, uh, let me just read the opening lyrics and then I'll let you kind of take it from there. Um, you were voted most likely to have your name go up in lights. Only took a few years to see that through. Now you're most likely to end up dead alone in a hotel room, 31, 32. I like, like third room. I love that way he sings that room there. Yes. There. But, uh, little falsetto. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's like, he's like, he's singing it so happy, but it is the most depressing fucking thing. You know, it, and again, like, like the message here actually kind of, it, 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 you, it grabs you and it just, it takes you down. It's 31, 32. He's like, yeah, he's going to die around now. 31, 32. That's what the, he's trying to say there. Right. Yeah. 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 Sure. Okay. And, 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 and not just, I mean, not just speaking of Lane, but Jerry was on that path, and and he even said he said that's he he kind of figured that would be be his path also. Um, it's just there's it's just such a, a, a like you said depressing, but it's such a great song, and and you get to that part um, with the uh, uh, commander. What's the line, commander? Uh, anyway it's a it's a the 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 lyric is is based on he said that's what they called him when he was a kid um but it's just got to again the melodies are amazing i actually had a couple of the girls that work in the worked at the front a and m come back and listen to it one night after the mix was done and they just turned the lights down closed their eyes and and it's a long song and a lot of people don't have that attention span and they just like cried after it yeah that's a great song and i said this could that could have been a sound on the sound anything Again, it was it was not a song that you could cut down because it tells a story, and there's no way to edit. You can't change the story like that. No, I get it. Yeah, and it it he just had a remarkable way of of singing and writing lyrics and and combining the melody that would just make something so dark sound so beautiful at the same time. Yes, yeah, that's well put. Well put. That's exactly where that song is. And and it, it, there's some pleading, pleading vocals in there that just yeah. sound, it, it's like when he says, "I believe you," you know, "I believe it." Yeah, um, yeah. There you go. Oh man. Well, uh, looking back on the album, uh, I, it, where, where would you stack it in your career? How do you feel about it now? Uh, do you go back to it at all? Listen to it, or I have it in, in years, but when I do listen to it, I, it always makes me smile. It's like wow. I, I, an interesting thing about the record too is uh, you're always your own worst critic, and I think I could have done that better in the mix and all that stuff. But the interesting thing is, and in, in maybe we were a little bit ahead of all that stuff. But there, those aren't there aren't any drum samples on that. And as a matter of fact, Mike plays a Yamaha kit, and the president of a Yamaha came out and and commented on how great the kick drum sounded, which I thought was pretty cool. 
because that's just the start. You know, it's his, his signature drum kit. No samples. You know, it's it's not it's atypical of what what we became. You know, music wise and mixers and everything. We're all right. Let's scrap a sample. That'll make that sound better. Wow. <clears throat> and, and so, so do you stay in contact with Jerry at all, or? I had for a while, and I have it. The, the last time, the, last time I talked to him, they came through Atlanta. But this was uh, when William was with them. But uh, gosh, it's been their first tour, so it was three records ago. So oh, it's boy. been that many years yeah, okay. um, that I hadn't talked to him. Well, have you have you dug the stuff that he's done with William? Oh man, that, I tell you what, with the first record came out that with William, the just the, uh, Nick Raskolinix did those records, and just. A buddy of mine says it just the guitars sound like a giant hug. They're just yeah. so big and warm and just you know it. No, I'm I, I think those records sound amazing. I think the songs are just it's again it's just and it's funny you know William was in a band called Comes with the Fall mm-hmm. and they would they were based out of Atlanta for a bit and anyway William and the rest of the band would come to the studio and and get, you know they were friends with Jerry and stuff. So when Jerry went out and did his his tour when the record came out that was the that was his band. They'd do their comes with the fall set, and then they'd stay out, and Jerry'd just jump up in with his guitar and front man, and they'd continue on. So it was an odd kind of uh, tour, I guess you could say. Wow, yeah, that's kind of well. You know, as much as William uh, is the vocalist in the band, really Jerry, um, as far as especially with the new material, takes a more of a frontal approach than he did when it was Lane in the band. So William almost is kind of there to kind of help with the back catalog more than he is to sure. kind of be a replacement for Lane on new material. It's it's still always going to be Jerry's band yeah. to, in, in my estimation. Even when it was Lane. Now Jerry had had learned so much from Lane and 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 there's there's nobody sings like Lane. No. So it was there was no question of that, but I, I exactly what you're saying. It's like it's still Jerry's band and Jerry's going to do, you know, you got somebody's got to run the show. As Ted Nugent says, there's only room for one alpha male. In that. <laughs> <laughs> that's one of my favorite comment uh, quotes. And Ted's got a million of them. But. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, no. That's right. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> now I lost my train of thought. Uh, now, do, now, do you? Um, did you ever meet Lane? Did you ever ever have a chance? I talked to him on the phone. That was it. I, I never got to meet him, and that was that was. Uh, that was Jerry's prompting because Jerry had called him up after he'd played in the stuff and said, here, you got to hear what Lane has to say. And I talked to him for, I don't know, five minutes. That was about it. Really short conversation. Okay. We had uh, uh, one interesting thing to note is, is when he was looking for a um, label, when we were during the mix process, he was looking for a label and thinking about signing to uh, uh, something with Metallica had a label or an imprint or something to that okay. point. So, so Lars came by one night and he said, <laughs> Uh, he said, uh, "Where's Jerry?" You know, he said hi and all that stuff. He says, "Where's Jerry?" I says, "He's down in the in the artist lounge down there for the mix room." So he walks down there. He comes back. Says, "Any other idea?" And I said, "Nope." And so, <laughs> so that was that. And he says, "Well, he says, yeah." He says, "You know, I'd like to hear some of the stuff." And he said, "But and so anyway, he tells me he says, but here's what I want you to do on the mixes." And so he's telling me he says, "I want I want these versions of the mixes. I want one with a kick drum up, two dB. One up with kick drum up four db and one up six right and then i want it the, the uh. backwards down all that and then i want the snare drum so he wanted like 20 mixes and so when jerry shows up after lars was gone i says are you signing with lars he says i don't know i said well he wants all these alternate mixes as we're going to spend six months mixing this record if we do that and he says screw that we're not <laughs> doing that <laughs> Yeah, i've heard michael uh, i think it's, i i'm not going to get his name right barbario or something like that um 
the the guy who mixed or yeah he or was an engineer on uh, uh, Injustice for All. Maybe it's not even the right guy. Maybe it's Bar- Steve- Michael Barbiero. He also did uh, 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 the uh, Guns and Roses. He mixed uh, okay. Appetite. If that's uh, if if you're talking about Barbiero, yeah. It might be. It might be that um, I might be. It might be Steve Thompson, isn't it? His partner. Yep. Okay. Yep. One of those two guys, and I, if they happen to hear this, my apologies. I just you reminded me of that. One of those guys was was on another show, and they talked. He talked about mixing with Lars, and when and they talked, they brought up the bass thing, you know, on that record, and he's <laughs> yeah. like, "Take it down seven dBs," and it's just kind of funny that you're actually telling the same kind of vernacular and how he speaks, and it's like, wow. Because uh, I don't know about you, like when I'm sliding a mixer, I'm not really necessarily going precisely two dBs. I'm kind of I'm getting it to where my ear says that sounds about right. Uh, well, uh, it, 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 it was also interesting to note that all his comments were about mixes with different drum uh, mixes, <laughs> didn't have anything with the vocals, anything else. That's you know, um, uh, I guess if I, you know if I had it to do over again, I was talking about some regrets. Is is uh, the way I had it mixed, Jerry kept saying the vocals are too loud. He says you got to. I want them riding in the car, not on top. And I, you know, I want to. Okay. People have to hear the lyric. Yeah. And so I, I listen to some of that sometimes and cringe a little bit, thinking the vocals are probably a little bit low. But again, that was those are the compromises you make making a record. You know? You're probably nitpicking yourself a little bit there because I really don't hear too many flaws production wise on this thing. I think it sounds amazing. Well, that's good. I I, I appreciate that. the 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 second round of mastering was a, was a major chore because the A&R guy was you know just wearing me out he says uh he says now we've got two different mastered versions where george uh tweaked the high frequency an eighth of a db and uh which one do you like i says i can't hear an eighth of a db yeah i said they're both the same if you ask me i said how are you listening to this he says well i listen on my headphones really loud so i can only listen like two minutes of the song because my ears shut down yeah oh okay exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't hear an eighth of a db either you know, you were talking about real quick about tape edits and stuff. Well, I remember them talking about, uh, I think, by Barbiero, maybe in an interview or something, that you can hear a lot of the tape edits where the symbols cut off a little bit because, you know, you don't have Pro Tools. You can't change things. So oh, right, an yeah. interesting footnote. It, yeah, I think it might be the same interview we're talking about. Yeah, because he's like, it, like that's one of the reasons they can't go back and remaster it is because <laughs> like that the, the, the drum track tape would just be falling into little pieces on the floor. <laughs> uh, look, but and, and no, look, I, I I know records perfect. I hear records, oh, that's beautiful, that's awesome. But in my mind, it's just you know, you make a record and you go after the emotion and you let everything else kind of fall where it falls. <laughs> You know, I, I like that too. You know what I mean? Some of my, yeah, I, I touched on Kiss a little earlier. I'm a huge Kiss fan. I don't know how familiar you are with the album Hotter Than Hell, but it it's a very controversial record because it sounds like shit. But yes. I actually really enjoy the sound. Uh, to me, I don't want it to change. But I but I acknowledge why people don't think it. Yeah, it's not a smooth sounding record, but I kind of like that. You know, and sometimes if you capture it just right, I mean, it it works. You know, at least for you some capture people. Capture the emotion. I, I'm a huge Kiss fan too, and, and they were actually mixing that record Psycho Circus at one point when I was working at A and M across the hall. So it was to me, it was like. Oh my gosh! And you'd see Gene and and he, you know, in in Ace and 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 Paul a couple of times, and and the coolest thing was going down the hallway and seeing they had their guitar set up in case they need to fix anything. And there's that bad lax bass all beat up. Oh yeah, you know. And there's the Iceman. I'm going, you know, as as I mean, I, I graduated in 1979, so they were just that was the band, mm. you know. <laughs> 
so that, to say that that many years later, say I'm standing in front of Gene's Battle base or Gene's sitting in the front lobby area typing, yeah. you know? <laughs> eating a bagel. It's just surreal, <laughs> you know. Can't can't help but notice you didn't mention you ran into Peter. <laughs> no, I, Peter <laughs> Peter wasn't around. It didn't seem like. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, you, you're the best. Uh, great stories, good stuff. People are going to just love this. So, uh, oh, good. I, I really appreciate uh, just, I don't know, getting back to me and, and, and letting us arrange this. So, Yeah, yeah. Let me know if I can help out anymore. All right, man. All the best. You have a good night. You too. Bye-bye. To welcome to the program. Uh, oh, real quick, it's it's Jeff Tomei, right? Or Tomei. 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 See, I, I I was like Marissa Tomei, and for some reason my mind just said Tomei right there. But yeah, Tomei. All right, just want to make sure I say your name right. <laughs> yeah, she's she's helped by her her uh, fame has helped out the pronunciation after years. I'm I'm 59, so after years of it being mispronounced, which is obvious. Yeah, it's she's she's like okay, great. Now you got it. That's it. All right, I, I get bacon or backin. <laughs> yeah, right. So, but yeah, it, we, it's a cross we all bear to a certain extent. No big deal. All right, I'd like to welcome to the program uh, producer, engineer, and uh, a mixer of uh, all sorts of. Uh, I mean, I, I'll get into your artist here in a little bit, but I'm you're here to talk about the Jerry Cantrell record. Of course, I'm talking about Jeff uh, Jeff Tomei. I almost fucked it up there again. <laughs> Jeff, welcome to the program. 
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 